The lower layers of Falcon use three key insights to achieve low latency in high bandwidth yet lossy Ethernet data center networks. Fine-grained hardware-assisted round-trip time RTT measurements with flexible per-flow hardware-enforced traffic shaping and fast-accurate packet retransmissions are combined with multipath-capable and PSP-encrypted Falcon connections. Say that three times fast. Nope. <laughs> Welcome to GCP Life, episode number 52, for Friday, the 3rd of November, 2023. GCP Life is sponsored by Kazna. At Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. And I'm your host, Stephen Bancroft. On today's show, the Google Q3 results are out. We look at some new features for HPC and GKE. We find out more info on the HWL Ebsworth hack. Plus, Google spends up big in the AI wars. But before we get to any of that, I'd like to introduce the co-host of the show, Ian Brown. How are you, Ian? I'm good, Baggy. How are you doing, mate? Good, 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 mate. Good, good. <laughs> Had to cover a couple of bites of that one today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, my we're mind's... all a bit tongue-twisted, aren't we? Yeah, my mind's so distracted. I settled on my new house yesterday. So, yeah, um, congratulations. The, the move is in progress. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, a couple of weeks, and I'll be oh, well, probably probably more like uh, about six weeks before I'm actually in there fully. Um, but uh, it'll be a new studio, uh, recording in a new location, and I uh, hope it all works out. Got to do a little bit of work to the room I'll be in. It won't be as lush as this one, um, <laughs> but um, it'll certainly be bigger once it's done. Yeah, you'll have to take your sound, your uh, sound deadening tiles with you. Yeah, they're coming. They're in the contract. They're coming off the wall. <laughs> nice. Uh, what about yourself? What have you been up to? Any tech adventures? Uh, not really any tech adventures, mate. We, uh, we're, we've been busy last weekend doing a little bit of landscaping around the place and um, trying, to, trying to fix up a, um, the house ready for fire season. We've already got a whole heap of fires burning around us. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it's been a bit hectic there right on the border. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, there's earlier – oh, it was actually late last week – um, Landsborough had a um, evacuate now order in on them uh, because of the fire that was burning down there, and and then there's another there was another fire burning out near Curramore yesterday that sort of flared up in the time it took me to go and pick up the kid from school. Yeah, uh, and that was a watch watch and act uh, mm. right off the bat, so it, it flared up real quick and got out of control real quick. And then I saw I saw this morning on the news the. Um, uh, the poor guys down near Tara, um, they're on a. The fireys have actually admitted straight out that there's no way they can battle this fire. It's it's now about life preservation. Yeah, you're getting that wind there that we're yeah, getting here in Sydney. Yeah, and that was that was the thing that scared me a little bit last night was because Curramore sort of due west of us, and um, and that fire piped up real quick yesterday, and then all of a sudden we had this howling westerly wind come in, and I was like, uh oh, it's pushing the fire towards us. So. Yeah, that'll yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, clean those gutters out, clear yep. those trees away. That's that's the thing. Make yeah, sure we've got plenty get... of water in the water tanks, and that's it. The pumps start up. Yep. <laughs> Make sure yeah. all the pumps work. Yep. Um, I'm gonna have to get used to that because we're in a fire prone area with a new place. So, um, yeah, we're cleaning things up. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't had any uh, chance for any tech adventures, of course. Uh, pretty time poor at the moment with the pack and the move and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, did you hear that uh, Thomas Curian was given some sort of award? Yeah, I, I, I read this the other day and I was like, what is this ASCI award thing? And I was like, and, and I, I had to look at it and obviously, and it's like American Society of Engineers of in Indian Origin. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. That's a thing. <laughs> that's very specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a thing. It's an annual award uh, produced, uh, awarded to engineers of Indian uh, origin, uh, of which there are a number. Mm. Um, I'll link an article in the show notes. Goes into um, engineers from all the you know enterprises you would know, Juniper Networks, Nvidia. Uh, energy and min- U.S. Energy and Minerals, um, a few other places, but yeah, this is an award that they give. And uh, Kirin was uh, CEO of Google Cloud. I uh, received the award uh, at the 31st National Conference, uh, which focuses on next-gen engineering innovation. Yeah, so interesting that he got a, a the Lifetime Achievement Award, which uh, which the the article doesn't go into a huge amount of detail about what the Lifetime Achievement Award is, but I'm assuming they, they say up here that it's a very prestigious award, so I'm assuming that it's uh, it's sort of recognising a lifetime of of outstanding achievement for for um, engineering. Engineering? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And not the, not the driving the train sort. No, 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 uh. or, building, or building bridges sort. Or building bridges sort. <laughs> um. And then, just before we get onto the show, so so first of all, congratulations for receiving that. It's a mm. fantastic effort. But uh, just before we get on with the show as well, um, there was another announcement, uh, and this directly affected Australia, and this dovetailed into Australia's defensive position, uh, which is really interesting. And I'll just re- I'll link the article uh, in the show notes. Uh, Aussie funding Google undersea internet cable. For Pacific Islands with geostrategic implications, so it's all kind of tied up in this Orcus deal and um, this this deal with Microsoft, the Australian government's got, and the Signal Directorate. Um, Google's going to fund two new undersea cables from Australia and the United States. Yeah, so and I think this one is is a direct play at keeping China out of it. Um, Absolutely, one, one of the references in yeah. here is about. Uh, it's a major, major strategic inroad by tying the region um, out of Huawei cables. So it's yeah, certainly it's certainly an interesting thing to have happen. Um, and along with uh, with with Microsoft's big announcement earlier this week of uh, some five billion dollars in more data centers in Australia, that's uh, there's quite a lot of investment going on locally. There is, um, yeah. Just to go on with that point, they they point out in this article that the you know countries, specific island countries like Fiji and French Polynesia, they want a good quality service, but they don't want to pay for it, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, they're going to get it. It's better to you know have it from trusted providers like Google, Australia, and the United States, rather than have China come and land a cable there and then have you know the uh, pitfalls that come with that. Yeah. Yeah, and look, there's there, there's some speculation about 
um, what they're going to get out of this as well because there's there's obviously some analysts out there saying, oh, you know, if, if Google puts this cable in, these are very, very, very small markets. But like Australia is a small market internet-wise. These these are island nations of, of thousands of people, not millions of people. And what's Google getting out of this? It's not like they're going to be able to recoup the cost of this cable. No, it goes beyond that, and that's yeah. why the Australian government's paying up some money for it. Yep. Yeah, it goes beyond just uh, the market share. It's like it says, it's a, a geostrategic, right? It's it's of strategic importance, and 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 it's it's a it's a military, you know, decision almost, mm. you know, um, that they're going to play it that way. Yeah, well, it, it's got to. It's obviously got to have some good benefit to it because Australia's coughing up fifty mil. Yep. So, um, it's interesting that. You think of Fiji, uh, you know, being this little Pacific Island nations, but as far back as I can remember, um, you know, I used to work at ATC, the overseas telecommunications company, and we had cables going to the US all the time. Fiji was was the waypoint, was the, yeah. the midway station. A lot of cables terminate and then and then retransmit from Fiji. Yep. Um, the article has a a, um, a map there. And you can see a lot of cables heading out through Fiji and uh, Samoa and uh, off to the US from there, and Hawaii as well is another good spot for it. Mm. So this is not a new thing to them. They certainly uh, would have the skills and um, the experience um, to manage a cable in Fiji. Um, um, Yeah, Google's just putting one through there. Yeah, nice. I like it. All right, should we get on with the show? Let's do it. Google quarter three results are out. Um, and the article here, storm clouds for Google as Q3 misses expectations despite AI flurry. Yeah, look, it's <laughs> the, the expectation was, was there and it was sort of a realistic expectation. They didn't miss it by much. I know. It's they, like, it's uh, the, like really? the story's a little bit, the, like the title's a bit clickbaity. It's clickbaity, uh, oh, yeah. 100%. But uh, <laughs> I mean, out of the $8.6 billion of expected revenue, they hit 8.41. So Meh. it's $190 million. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean million. really. Pocket change, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you got $8 billion, then yeah, it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> um, However, the, the revenue did continue to grow. It was an increase of 22%, but it fell short of their predictions. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's it. Um, they've, they've said in there that, uh, that the fundamental strength of the business was apparent again in Q3 with $77 billion in revenue, up from 11% year on year. Yeah. Um, and it's mainly search and YouTube, as well as momentum in Google Cloud. I think the um, the the one thing the one call out that they made in this article that I find um, quite interesting is the the call out that the Google Cloud um, growth is looks to be specifically tied to Vertex AI and all the AI driven stuff that that is um, that is in GCP. Yeah, I was going to make a similar point to that as well. Um, Vertex model gardens to build Gen AI apps and more. They do they do call out about that. Um, but interestingly as well, today, more than 60% of the world's thousand largest companies are Google Cloud customers. Yeah, I read that bit and I was like, what? <laughs> this yeah. is crazy. This is awesome. So, 
<laughs> yeah, there's it's there, right? And and the momentum's building, and there's there's a kernel of something there, right? <laughs> it's yeah. a kernel. Look, talking uh, to talking to guys inside a mental group that don't use Google Cloud all that often. Like I was talking to the Eliza guys. Um, they were doing a project for a for a client. Um, they usually use AWS, and they they said to me that the this project that they were doing was on Google Cloud, and they were like. The docs are so much easier to read. the The APIs are so much easier to understand. the mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. all the all the SDKs are there. You don't have to go hunting six different pages deep in AWS's docs to try and find the relevant SDK or the right the right way to implement something. Mm-hmm. So I think that has which is one of the fifty options that do the same thing. In yeah, AWS. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like Google's got one option for this because. This is the option they're putting the money into, not not let's let's create fifty options that all are sort of meh, and and do one specific thing well. They um, whereas Google's got like their AI thing, which is an AI suite that does everything AI well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but despite all that, Microsoft is crushing Google in a massive market, and AI is a big reason why. Yeah. Uh, article here on The Motley Fool uh, talks about uh, Microsoft and Alphabet moved in opposite directions as investors digested earnings reports from the two big tech companies. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, Google, after their announcement of their their Q3 results, and they didn't quite hit their target, like I said, they missed it by like $190 million, And, of course, their share price went down. Like it was, there was a very sharp sell-off. yeah. Um, whereas Microsoft, because of their their continued uh, capitalization in OpenAI and and Azure AI, uh, their their share price went up. So we can see here that AI is very much the playing card of all of the clouds. It's a hot button at the moment. It yeah. is. Uh, that's not to say that Google's doing badly here. I mean, realistically, they're still doing pretty good. Yeah, what's disappointing though is the market doesn't seem to understand that Google has been, you know, just working away at this in the background for years and years and years and years, just churning away at it. And it really hasn't had much prominence, hasn't really been in the spotlight. No. Right. And to react like that to it, I don't, I don't think they get, they get it. I don't think they get the, the, the long, the long term investment that there's been and how much further we've got to go on this. Yeah, that's right. This it's it is really quite an intriguing market. Uh the the whole AI space is quite intriguing to me because you look at how how long you've been able to do predictive searching inside of inside of Google. Like just Google search, you start typing a query and Google search is automatically giving you suggestions to it which is technically a form of AI. Mm. Um, and that's been around for years and years and years. But, and then all of a sudden OpenAI comes in and they make the first GPT that's publicly available and, and you know, they steal, the, they steal all the thunder. Yeah, that's really what it was, wasn't it? It was just thunder-stealing exercise. Yeah, and uh, it's still going and, on. Yeah, yeah, and we said it many times. Google must have been scrambling behind the scenes to... To catch up with that, and and you know we've got we've got uh, Bard now, and um, you know they, they're keeping up in the in the game. And I, but, and uh, I, I did see 
No, you're right. Um, I did see, like, we covered it the other week. The Pixel 8 has uh, Bard built into it. It has some really cool AI features in in videos and sound editing and, and picture editing and all that sort of stuff. Um, I saw a, a post the other day and I, cu- I couldn't find it again afterwards of Microsoft is thinking about getting the Windows phone back out. Oh. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I thought that died like 20 years ago. And surely it did. <laughs> oh, that was horrible. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> the, the Windows desktop on the phone. Horrible. Yep. Anyway, speaking of things not so horrible, um, Google opens Falcon, a reliable low-latency hardware transport to the ecosystem. Now, I I have to admit, Ian, I read this article and I barely understood a word of it. <laughs> what, what is this all about? <laughs> oh, look, mate, this is um, this is interesting. So, Google have had a long history of um, solving problems at scale using Ethernet, right? So, like their entire environment was based on Ethernet once upon a time. I'm sure large large swaths of it still are. Uh, so what they're doing is rethinking the transport layer to satisfy demanding workloads that require high burst, high message rates, and low latency. Good examples of this are uh, workloads such as storage and AIML training um, and high-performance computing. So what this is is just a rethinking of the hardware transport layer and making Ethernet more reliable, more scalable, and... Uh, and faster. Right. So we're talking about the standard like Ethernet frame here. Yep. That whole protocol is being replaced with something else. It's it's more the so you think about the the Ethernet it's Ethernet frames itself and you've got Falcon which which contains the packet delivery layer, the transaction layer and the upper layer protocol mapping. And so what they've done is um uh, the RDMA and NVM Express upper protocol layers um, are sort of an add-on into uh, Falcon's ex- um, additional ULPs. So you can add mm. any number of upper layer protocols that you need on top of this. Right. So when this article talks about Falcon as a hardware-assisted transport layer, are they talking about layer four in our OSI model being the transport layer, or are they talking or they saying this is at uh, layer layer two um, where the Ethernet frames live and that's going to be hardware assisted. Yeah, I think I th- now it doesn't say it in the article, but from what I can gather, it is probably that layer two in the right. OC model. Yeah. There's a whole yeah. heap of other ones that they've uh, and it's so Google's releasing Falcon to the Open Compute Project. Um, they've done this a number of times with a number of other technologies as well, like Carousel, which is um, scalable traffic shaping at the host end. Um, Snap, which is a microkernel approach to host networking. Swift, which is delay. Um, and delay is simple and effective for congestion control of the data center. And, and uh, things like uh, CSIG, which is congestion signaling. So it's all about freeing up the Ethernet frames so that you can get the most amount of traffic through that that pipe, whatever mm. size that pipe is, um, and and stop congestion and bottlenecking and queuing and all that sort of stuff. Right, right, right. And for sort of modern um, 
layer layer ones, basically. Like, I mean, things like, um, you know, AC Wi-Fi and modern fiber, and that, that they wouldn't have existed when no. when you know Ethernet was first devised. Off, so they had to make it so it worked on effectively low speed, low bandwidth physical connections. Uh, whereas we don't have that limitation now. No, that's right. Yeah. I mean, Wi-Fi wouldn't have existed without uh, <laughs> the uh, the innovations of the CSIRO anyway. Oh, that's right. That's, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's, a, that's a whole other conversation. But it, yeah. is, it is. It's fantastic. It was one of those yeah. things that I learned very early, early on in my career and, and people sort of sit there and go, what, a CSIRO? No, they didn't invent that. Like, yeah, 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 they did. Uh, actually, if you go to iView and you can find the catalyst story on that, actually, and they, they, okay. do, they do a bro- great breakdown about it, how it was almost given away, mm. uh, but CSIRO got a new CEO at the time and he said, hang on a minute, what, why are we giving this away? <laughs> right, yep. We need to license it to the industry. And yeah, it funds the CSIRO big time these days. Yeah. Um, okay, so is this... So this is primarily for high performance computing. Um, I'm going to ask the question: Could could this potentially replace what we see every day in our like home networks or the internet? Maybe. Um, it really it really depends. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of industry perspectives on this. Uh, so in this article, there's a number of industry representatives in here: Juniper, Cisco, Arista. Um, Intel, uh, Oracle, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole heap of them. That, and their viewpoints are very much that uh, that this is this is good to see that we're still thinking about Ethernet technology and mm-hmm, how we can mm-hmm. better it. Um, so mm. potentially, like if, if you've got things like, if you've got companies like Intel and Cisco and Juniper behind it, mm. I mean, these guys are big guys in the, in the network card markets. So... Once they start introducing it into the backbone, and then it'll it'll start dispersing out into the, the the edges. Yeah, yeah, it goes everywhere. Let's hope it's uh, more quickly adopted than IPv6. <laughs> you know that's going, <laughs> mate. That's it's smashing along. <laughs> I think it's got a change rate of about point zero 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 one percent. That's that's a problem for my kids to work out. That's not that's not something I'm going to have to deal with. Um, Letters anyway, in IP on. addresses. What? <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Um, GKE gets a new feature. GKE Stateful High Ability HA Controller now in public preview. Yeah, so we all know I love GKE. Um, oh, yeah. I ha- have have loved GKE since the day I started playing with it, which was uh, for a while ago now. Uh, but this is this is a really cool technology. So um, once upon a time, if you wanted to have a highly available application, you had to run multiple replicas of a single pod. So multiple replicas of your front end, and then you'd couple that with multiple replicas of your back end, and uh, and all your middleware would all have multiple replicas as well. So that if one failed, you had another one to fail over to or another one to use in that round-robin loop. The stateful HA gets around stateful workloads by replicating the uh, persistent disks. So that was a big issue with um, with stateful workloads is you can't have multiple instances of them because you can't attach the same workload to, this, to sorry, different workloads to workloads. the same disk. Right. So this gets around that by having you scale down your, your replicas to one, 
you replicate your regional persistent disk and then you have an ability there that if it fails, that pod gets spun up somewhere else and connects to that same disk. And it's replicated throughout the region uh, and doesn't you don't end up losing the data that's there. You don't it's yeah, just gives you that that fail that HA capability that you needed. Mm, mm. Um and it's kind of a middle ground, isn't it, between um, having a fully a, a fully redundant uh, cluster versus versus just you know a single node on a, on a one disk. That middle ground. Yeah, it's it is a bit of a middle ground. Like you, you've got to think of if you've got a stateful workload, so something that requires persistent disk attached to that pod, you've got to have some way. If you need multiple replicas, you've got to have some way of replicating that data between all of those pods. Mm -hmm. So between all those disks. Um, now, at this point, like you could use something like CoroSync in Linux or, or some other technology that replicates data between, um, between nodes. Yep. But that all adds management overhead for you. Whereas this is a, a fully managed way of doing things where you can replicate that persistent disk and... Um, and you can scale down your replicas to one and they automatically fail over to another one if you need to, just spins another one up. Um, or you can leave them connected to individual persistent disks in different regions, or sorry, in different zones within the region. I think the the, the big takeaway here in, uh, in the article is by installing the stateful HA controller and allowing it to orchestrate failover within, with regional PD, so persistent disk, uh, you can add tolerance to disruptions such as zonal failures for a marginal increase of 8%, so a marginal cost increase of 8%. Mm -hmm. Stateful HA operator reschedules your replica within a pre-configured timeout, allowing you to minimize the unavailability window of your application to fit its SLA at a very attractive cost point. Right. Okay. All right. Well, look, I'm doing my, a research for my developer cert at the moment and actually a big chunk of that is a kubernetes uh course in uh the in the uh in the uh the google uh skills booth the cloud skills booth so i might get a chance to play with this while i'm doing that nice what happens mm. i'll let you know all right moving on um Got a few security items this week, a um, couple of exploits, and uh, a bit of an update on HWL Ebsworth. But to kick things off, uh, we have, <laughs> of all things, WinRAR exploits in the wild. Google, who would, Google. <laughs> who would have thought WinRAR was still around? <laughs> I know, Google researchers spot Google researchers spot WinRAR exploits in the wild. Yeah, yeah. So. Look, the vulnerability that they found allows attackers to execute arbitrary code when users uh, attempts to view a, a benign file, such as a PNG file, uh, within a zip archive. Uh, yeah. They have patched it, uh, but they observed government-backed actors from a number of countries, and there's sort of we see all this in in uh, quotants from a number of countries exploiting WinRAR yeah. vulnerability as part of their operations. So. We're not going to mention those companies. Yeah, take a guess. Yeah. China. <laughs> so, but here, here's the thing: like, are you opening that file? How does this work? Because it doesn't really say in the article. Are you opening the file and it's sending some data somewhere, or well, you have something uh, for, in the archive? For a long time, you've been able to embed malicious code into image files right at the very head of the image file. 
Um, yep. So that's that's not hard to do. That's but that's a fairly well known attack, and it's fairly well um, thwarted these days. But I, I I'm not sure how this one exactly works. There's not a huge amount of detail here. Um, it just says that it uh, it allows attackers to execute arbitrary code when a user attempts to view a benign file within the zip archive. So potentially it's a it's a modification to the zip archive. And it's auto execute function. Mm. Mm. Uh, the paragraph prior to that says it uh, combined with a quirk in the implementation of Windows shell execute. So mm. must run something on your machine, and once you run something, that's it. You can do whatever you want. Obviously, um, right. Well, so thankfully, I don't want to run Windows. Don't run Windows and don't don't look. I think I installed WinRAR on my machine maybe over ten years ago, and I've not updated it since. So I don't even know. What I don't know. I don't remember the last time I used WinRAR. I think I I scrapped it for Seven Zip years and years ago. Yeah, yeah. I probably should do that as well. But um, yeah, so if you've got, it doesn't say if it affects only exploits begun earlier this year. So I'd imagine it's the more recent versions of WinRAR. Um, look, update it, or just dump it for seven zip if uh, if that's what you want to do. Yep. Or just use Linux. Don't just- have the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got uh, Okta. What's going on with Okta? Oh, uh, yeah. Couple of breaches in Okta's. Okta's latest security breach is haunted by the ghost of incidents past. Yeah. <laughs> Once bitten, twice shy, hey? So so that old uh, suffered an intrusion in its customer support system uh, breach. Uh, we, we haven't heard that used at least three times <laughs> this year. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, look, they, they, got, uh, they got breached. Uh, it was probably a couple of weeks ago now uh, that that breach came. It was, actually, it was probably only about a week ago. Um, but, yeah, so they got breached. Uh, it affected it affected around one percent they tell us of its eighteen and a half thousand customers so not not a huge proportion but still enough mm. uh, I even had one of my friends uh, contact me who's starting at Kasna next week um, and he said he had the invitation uh, to join our octa um, org. And I went, oh, awesome. That's great. And he went, have you not read the news? And I went, yeah, I've read the news, <laughs> but we're not affected, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> the company confirmed that certain Okta customers were affected. Okta tells Wired that it notified around 1%, uh, which, which was 18,400 customers that would, they were impacted. Um, and it seems, well, Wired sort of making an assumption that they didn't really learn from their last breach. Yeah. Um, Wired asked Okta a series of questions about what steps it is taking to improve customer service defences in the wake of the two breaches and why there appears to be a lack of urgency when the company receives reports of potential incidences. The company declined to comment. Yeah. Um, the, the, the article actually says here the breach at Okta is particularly concerning because it shares many features with a security incident the company dealt with in 2022, in which exactly. attackers compromised a sub-processor that Okta had trusted to do customer support work. So I, I do find it a bit uh, surprising that they haven't um, tightened up their reporting on 
on their third parties. I mean, all companies that have had a third party breach are tightening up their their um, notifications and all that sort of stuff on breaches of that third party. And it seems like Okta hasn't done that. But obviously, that the article doesn't say that, so I'm speculating. It doesn't say that explicitly, no. But uh, if you if you look at the similarities between this and the previous breach, and the fact that they're not replying and commenting on it, I mean, you read between the lines, and that's certainly yeah, seems that's to be the case. Um, all right, then. While on the subject of breaches, we've got HWL Ebsworth. Um, some more information has come out about that. Um, AFP deems that 16 members at risk after HWL. Uh, HWL Ebsworth breach. So in this story, we've got um, 16 members of the Australian Federal Police um, were have had their uh, ID and information exposed. Uh, details such as name, mobile number, email address were leaked to the dark web. Yeah, this is a bit concerning. Uh, the The Chief Operating Officer of the AFP uh, said a total of 67 current and former AFP appointees were affected by the breach, mm. um, but only 16 of those current or former members um, did have a notifiable data breach. So, look, it's, again, the 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 breach here is a lot bigger than what we first learned about a couple of months ago when this happened. We first learned about it and we were like, oh, that seems that seems pretty bad. And then... And then it's just grown and grown and grown and grown. Like last last episode, we covered that NDIS was affected, and and now we're hearing that some members of the AFP have been affected. So I really hope that they they aren't at risk, uh, because the way that this reads, it is um, they're not they're not at risk of serious harm, but they are definitely at risk. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they're you know, AFP members and their data's, you know, in the hands of bad actors. Yeah. Um, as you would imagine being on the on the dark web, then yeah, they, that would put them at risk. Yeah, definitely. Um and speaking of NDIS, we've got the data of six hundred and forty five NDIS participants caught in HWL Ebsworth breach. Um and this has sort of had a few comments um from the political side. Liberal Senator Holly Huge says that she was concerned by the amount of time that it took to notify the affected participants. And that really seems to be the crux of, of what this particular incident is all about. Mm. It's just been slow. Yeah, that's right. Look, it, it has been. Uh, the, the, the data breach, like six or seven weeks to notify someone that their mm. data has been um, exposed is pretty, pretty garbage, to be honest. They've said that it's a fairly substantial manual process well. that's required to confirm which participants was affected. And then, of course, they've got to send that information to the NDIA individual in their communica- communication accessibility needs, right? Yeah, right. So they, they, they might not be able to just send an email to all of them, right? They, they might actually need someone to go out to visit them and explain what's what's happened, right? Yeah, okay. I hadn't I hadn't considered that, but I, I still I still think six to seven weeks is probably a little too long. Oh yeah, just to get the data to hmm. start with, that's too long. Yeah, yeah. Um, lots to be lot to be said about having a plan, right? Uh, you know, having a, um, a plan for being compromised. What What are you going to do when you're being compromised? Well, first thing you got to do, you got to 
You've got to tell the people that have been compromised. Well, that means you've got to have a, a quick and efficient and easy way to get the data to know who has been compromised. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I, I like the the bit that I love about this article is uh, down at the end of the article, they said they've updated their privacy management plan in, in July this year. Uh, we also, throughout July, had individual meetings with all other law firms that are engaged by the agency and the AAT to ask them what additional cybersecurity measures they had put in place. So they appear to be learning from from this exposure and, and tightening up their own policies and their own procedures on how to address it and making sure that third parties are also um, in line with what they expect. Hmm. AI must be able to solve this. I'm thinking if this is legal data from a law firm, it's probably like just huge piles of unstructured data. Right, photos, yep. forms, receipts, all that kind of stuff. Feed it into an AI and just have it pull the data out. I'm sure there'd be a way. I, I'm I am really surprised that none of these security companies that are out there have used AI to plug into the dark web and see where data has gone. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's happening. Yeah, we're just we're just not privy to it. I'm sure it's happening. Yep. But that would be a huge selling point, though. That's the next iteration, isn't it? Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah. Not only that, then you could maybe start to preempt. Yeah, well, that's right. All right. All right, speaking of AI, should we get on with the AI wars? AI wars. Anthropic Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI announce executive director of the Frontier Model Forum and over $10 million for a new AI safety fund. Yeah, this is a cool article. So October 25th, Anthropic, Google, Microsoft and OpenAI are announcing the selection of Chris Meserol. Hopefully I've pronounced his name correctly. As the first, right. <laughs> first executive director of the Frontier Model Forum um, and the creation of a new AI safety fund. Uh, yeah, so it's an industry body, body focused on ensuring safe and responsible development of frontier AI models. Yep. Yeah, and I think this this has been a long time coming. Uh, we saw, uh, I think you commented this morning to me that that uh, uh, the US president has just signed an executive order around AI safety. Uh, so the writing's been on the wall. Like there's been murmurings from a heap of different countries about safety around AI, and now we're uh, we're seeing. We're seeing the the industry self regulate. Yeah, yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna be a body that can uh, you know the governments can can they can advise the governments. The governments can ask questions of them, um, and it's it's a one stop shop, right? So yeah. that they can put sensible rules around how this is going to work, and and everyone can still benefit from it. Um, and it's good to see that everyone's involved, right? Anthropic, Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI are all all involved in it. Yeah, yeah, I think this is fantastic. Uh, also from the article here, the forum's uh, mission is to advance AI safety research to promote responsible development, um, identify safety best practices for frontier models, share knowledge with policymakers, academics, civil society, and others to advance responsible AI development. I think that's a big one. Yep. 
uh, and uh, finally, support efforts to leverage AI to address society's biggest challenges. That's a good one too. Yeah. So if the forum's aware of, you know, climate change, the governments go off on some tangent trying to solve climate change, but, you know, the AI forum says, hey, we've got, we've got this really cool way we can do it, mm. um, you know. Because yeah. we, we tackle all the big problems like climate change here in GCP Life, but yeah, so <laughs> just throwing it out there as an example. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> climate change, politics, we're in it all. <laughs> we, we do it all. <laughs> um, and then finally, the article does say the primary focus of the fund will be supporting the development of new model evaluations and techniques for red teaming AI models to help develop and test evaluation techniques, and potentially dangerous capabilities of frontier systems. Yep. Yeah, because we all we all remember the the chaos AI that was was out there trying to pollute AI models not that long ago, so... Oh, yeah, look, that doesn't, doesn't mean to say that uh, there'll still be actors trying to do stuff like that, hmm. but, but I think what will happen, uh, I hope what will happen from this uh, forum, they will advise government on what the regulations and law should be around AI, and I think right? I think more more than that is that that you'll find these companies starting to work together around how can we prevent bad actors from polluting AI. Yeah, because I mean, once you've polluted the AI, there's there's not a huge way of getting backwards from that because it's a self learning model. Yeah, I mean, unless you're I guess if you're training a new model, you just have to be picky what you put into it, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, you, you really want to avoid it being polluted, um, unless you get the the, the grey the grey sludge, the, the, <laughs> the grey. You know, the, you know, you just got this AI out there that's just consuming everything, yeah. and it's just <laughs> reading all of Wikipedia you know? and then jumping on the <laughs> dark web it. and <laughs> doing everything it needs it wants to do. It's just just running as a as an executable on all these, uh, you know. All these bot machines out there. <laughs> Terminator, anyone? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> what's her What's her name? Um, Connor. Sarah uh, Connor. Yeah, she'd be <laughs> she'd be losing her mind at us right about now. And uh, going along with that, Google bets two billion dollars on AI startup Anthropic. Uh, Inks a cloud deal. They have indeed. Yeah, so Google is committed to invest two billion in the AI company Anthropic. Um, yeah, but it's not $2 million in cash, right? They're doing it in this uh, convertible notes, which I didn't know what this was, but it does explain here a type of debt that will convert to equity at the startup's next funding round. Right, okay. Right. Um, so it's like monopoly money that becomes real money. It's like monopoly money, yeah, that, that, that becomes available on the next funding round, yeah. Yeah, right. This has been done before as well. Um, a convertible note investment, was made by Amazon to Anthropic as well of $4 billion earlier this year. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so it says here prior to the financing, Google also signed a major cloud agreement with Anthropic. According to one person familiar with the details, the cloud deal in which Anthropic will use Google's suite of computing services uh, was even larger than the latest investment and will stretch over multiple years. Mm. So that's cool. Yeah. And uh, that'll all go into Google's pockets, and then obviously you would assume they'll reinvest it. Uh, new data centers, new pipes, new AI tech. Yeah, new uh, AI capabilities. Yep. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Now this has all come about because of this new hire they've got V V Bu- 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 Um 
It's head of strategic finance. Apparently, he's well connected. Okay. Um, and uh, he's doing a lot of talks with uh, industry insiders. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. Oh, good luck to him. And then finally, um, we didn't know if we we're going to keep this one in, but we, we, we may as well. Um, they poor Europeans. Why, why don't they have? <laughs> why don't they have a Silicon Valley um, article here on the Guardian? Says it's just a matter of time. Why AI could help Europe, Europe create its own Apple or Google? Yeah. So uh, Arthur Mensch, who's a former uh, Google AI unit employee. Um, now called this is what we're interested in. Yeah, it, yeah. that's right. Uh, now called Google's DeepMind, uh, believes that uh, that artificial intelligence will be the great leveler, putting Europe on par with its previously uncatchable competitors across the Atlantic. Uh, speculation, speculation. Oh, I yeah. Mean, uh, how, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, so Arthur Mensch is the is the CEO of Mistral, which is a company that develops large language models. Um, which is the technology, obviously, that underpins um, tools like ChatGPT and, and BARD and all those uh, types of general-purpose transforms. Um, and he believes that this could hand the initiative to a continent producing a new wave of fast-moving startups. So, hence, a Silicon Valley. If you look at how Silicon Valley was set up to start with, there's a lot of expats there anyway. Mm. And... So maybe, maybe they're going to come back. There is a quote here in the article. If you look at the founders of some of the startups in Berlin, London, Paris right now, many of them have former operations, operators from the US tech companies at their helm or in key leadership positions, he said. So maybe because of the pandemic, everyone's migrated back home and they've brought these skills back with them. Yeah, potentially. Um, I think it's interesting uh, that there's an AI safety summit this week um, with other tech chief executives, world leaders and experts. Um, and it's happening at Bletchley Park in the UK. And we all know mm. what Bletchley Park is famous for, which is Alan Turing and and uh, uh, Tim Hutt, I think his name was. There's a right. there's a whole heap of them out there that were um, were uh, critical in in cracking the uh, the codes during World War Two. The Enigma codes. The Enigma codes. That's yep. it. Yep. Yeah, Bill yep. Tut. His name yep. was. Yes. Um, and here's the other thing. I, I seem look. I don't know if it's the case anymore. I seem to remember Ireland and Dublin being a centre of software development. Maybe that was if, maybe that's my nineties. Maybe that's nineties. Steve talking. Oh, huge. But, of course it was. Like the, there's and and it's still a huge point. Um, it's still a, a huge place for companies to to have an address too because mm. they pay no company tax. There's tax incentives. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So I, I yeah so Europe I don't think Europe's missing out. Um, there there needs there kind of needed to be somewhere in the world that was going to be a Silicon Valley. Now if it wasn't going to be Silicon Valley, it was going to be somewhere else, right? Um, you've got you do have other hotspots in the world like Dublin. We mentioned we know Israel that they, they always seem to come up as like crazy wicked software developers as well. Yeah. There's some always been good software coming out of Israel, right? Probably not so much at the moment, but that's always been the case. Um, I mean, look at what's happening in India. I mean, they, they, you know, in the 90s, we started pushing all outsourcing all our call centers and all our tech jobs to India. And now, now they're, they're reaping the rewards of that, right? A lot of skills coming out of there. We saw earlier that, uh, you know, they've got a special award for the engineers that come out of India. Yeah. So, 
I don't know if Europe is going to be the one spot. Uh, I think we're actually going. We may end up seeing a few little spots pop up, uh, but I think I think the takeaway from this article is um, maybe Silicon Valley is in a decline, right? Um, as a result of AI, I don't know. I, well, I would agree with you, not not specifically because of AI. I agree with you in that Silicon Valley is probably in decline because once upon a time, that was the place to be. If you were a tech startup, you, you, mm. in order to succeed, you had to be in Silicon Valley. But I think now we're seeing the the world sort of decentralize a little bit. We're not, yes. and, and even in cities, we're seeing it as well. Like cities yes. in Australia are decentralizing. People are moving out from the city. We We don't want to be in these hotspots of disease that that are the city yeah. like like you have a look at victoria is going through another wave of coronavirus now yeah, yeah. Um, because we can do it now yeah. right how how long has the uh, the concept of telecommuting been a thing right yeah you can telecommute you can watch shows in the 80s and talking about using a dial-up modem and i could work from home yeah. right? <laughs> it really wasn't practical back then no. but now we can do it right i do it every day you yeah. do it every day right it doesn't i'm literally moving house because i can do it yeah. right yeah and, and, and that's it i haven't been and, in the office for ages because yeah. i don't need to go there yeah, and that's you're right. That's a greater reflection. That's going to happen at all levels, right? Mm. Yeah, and and I, I read an article. I read an article last week about a. Um, uh, it's about um, CEOs and CIOs and all that who are sort of mandating their workers to come back to the office and how those companies mm. are struggling and why they're struggling. And I think they won't get anyone that wants to work there. Yeah, that's it. Like if you're not <laughs> yeah. offering flexible working arrangements and all that, like we we've got really good flexible arrangements here. We 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 still do our work. We we work hard. We do what the client wants. Um but we have some flexibility in that I'm allowed to go and do the school run every day. I can go mm-hmm. and pick up my kid and and yes, I just come back. I take that hour to go and pick up my kid. I come back and I work an extra hour. That's it. that's how it works. That's it. Um, and and companies that don't don't think like that are soon finding that, uh, especially if you're in technology, uh, mm. that you're not going to exist before long. Because yep, you know, you're not going to have anyone that wants to work there. That's it. Simple as that. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, uh, on that note, um, on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, let's wrap it up for today, Ian. Yeah, mate. <laughs> I think I've talked too much. Fun. That's it. <laughs> Look, don't forget to go to iTunes, write the show review. It really helps the show out. Um, and spread the word as well. Tell everyone about the show. Uh, you can contact the show, gcplife at casna.com. We've got the website there. And we are working on a Mastodon server, we promise you. Um, and don't forget, today's show is sponsored by Casna. At Casna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. Well, I've got to get out of here and start doing some packing, and uh, I'm going to get into the new house tomorrow. And I've got to go and pick up my son, and we've got to go and have our mug shots taken at uh, the post office, passport photos. Always a fun job getting that done. All yep. right, mate. Well, I'll catch you later. Catch you, guys. You Thank you. In my short stint in desktop support, the 
oh, the number one thing was that you just didn't read prompts. They would just click okay and dismiss it. And it was telling you what the problem was. 